This morning, as you can see on the slide there, we're going to be talking about prayer. Um, At least once a year, I do a, a sermon on prayer. And whenever I do, the sense I get is that People leave uh, maybe with a, a little bit of a feeling of, of being put on a guilt trip. Um, they know, yeah, I know I should pray more, but, but it's hard for me to pray. Or, or maybe they get discouraged because they don't, they, don't, they don't see answers. They're not sure it really makes much of a difference. Um, and I'm hoping that this morning's message will be something different for you. Because this morning, I want to encourage you about the power of your prayers. Uh, Not the power of my prayers. um, Not the power of some other person that you think is just a real prayer warrior and and your prayers. Um, Because your prayers, uh, if if you've been here in the last year and a half or two years, your prayers resulted in a miracle. A, a, a true, real, honest-to-God miracle. And before I tell you what that miracle is or, or was, I want us to look at a story in the Bible that, that talks about a miraculous answer to prayer. The story we're going to look at is found in Acts chapter 12. Uh, if you took one of the Bibles that the ushers handed out, that's on page 885. And just before we look at this story together, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us. And we pray that this morning it would do that, that you would speak to us through the Bible. Uh, So we ask that you would open our ears to hear what what you want us to hear, that you would open and, and soften our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 12 begins on a really dark note. Uh, the, the newly formed Christian church is uh, experiencing pretty significant persecution. Uh, Luke tells us that, that Herod is cruelly attacking people in the church. And it seems like he's targeting the leaders. Maybe he thinks that if he can get rid of the leaders that this this whole movement will just sort of fall apart. And so we read that Herod executes James, the brother of John, the apostle. So James and John, you've, you've heard those names as some of Jesus' uh, 12 uh, disciples. We think that Herod probably beheaded him. And, and so James becomes the very first of the apostles to be martyred, to be killed for following Jesus. Now, Herod is a politician and uh, probably, from what we know about him, probably a narcissist. Uh, So when he saw that the Jews who hated the Christians were happy about him executing James, he arrested Peter, and he planned to execute Peter as well. But he has to wait until Passover is is finished to execute the, the sentence. So what he does, Herod assigns four squads of four soldiers each to guard Peter. Total of 16 men guarding one man. Uh, Herod wants to make sure Peter stays in custody. 
So as I, as I said, this is a pretty dark time for this fledgling faith community, right? But we know something about this community because from its earliest beginnings, when the, when the believers in Jesus first started meeting together, one of the things that we know about them is that they devoted themselves to prayer. Now, Jesus had, had taught them to pray in a format that we know as the Lord's Prayer. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But he also taught them to pray for healing in John 11. He taught them to pray against demonic powers that oppressed people in Mark 9. Uh, he taught them to pray for provision in Matthew 7, to pray for rather than against their enemies in Matthew 5. Taught them to pray against temptation in Luke 22. He, he taught them, in fact, to pray for anything, to ask anything they wanted in his name. That was the caveat there. Anything in his name, and it would be done for them, John 16. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that much when we come to verse 5, then, of Acts chapter 12, and we read, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was being made to God for him by the church. Now, we're not told what they were praying. Um, Maybe some of them were praying like I often do, that that Peter would know uh, in a really tangible way God's presence with him and that he would experience uh, an indwelling peace of God as he uh, sat there in prison. Maybe others were praying that Peter would be a strong witness to those around him, his Uh, his guards, his fellow prisoners, maybe even if he had an opportunity, a strong witness to Herod as as the Apostle Paul one day would, would have. Others may have been praying that as he faced execution, he he would do it with courage, the the courage that Stephen and, and James had shown when they were executed. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, There must have been a few who dared to pray something like this. God, you delivered Daniel from the lion's den. And you delivered David from Saul's spear. Now please, God, please deliver Peter. Don't let him die like James. And and though Luke doesn't tell us what exactly they prayed, he does tell us how they were praying. He says that they were praying earnestly or fervently in some of your translations. And, and the word that Luke uses for earnest prayer here only appears two other times in the whole Bible. It's the same word that Luke uses in his gospel in chapter 22 when he says that Jesus prayed so earnestly, so fervently. Some of you remember what happened? He sweat drops of blood. Uh, this, this gathering of believers are pleading with God on Peter's behalf. Now, meanwhile, Luke takes us back to prison uh, with Peter. Verse 6 tells us, On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. 
So Peter knows that this is his last night on earth. He's chained, probably hands and feet, between the two soldiers while other soldiers guard the door. So how does Peter uh, spend his last night? Is he going over escape plans? Gripped with with fear at, at what it will feel like in that maybe split second of awareness as the as the blade severs his head from his body? Maybe angry with God for allowing him, Peter, the one who Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, allowing Peter to be subjected to this kind of persecution. Is that what's going through his mind? No. Peter's sound asleep, sawing logs, catching some Z's there between the two guards. And this is where, at least as I read the story, Luke starts to inject some comedy into this drama. Verse 7, he says, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick! Get up! Then the chains fell off his wrists. Apparently, we're not sure how this happened, but apparently the angel has caused everyone in the whole jail complex to fall into a deep sleep. The the word that Dr. Luke, Luke was a physician, the the word that he uses in verse 6 is related to the word that we get coma from. So when the angel of the Lord appears uh, in dazzling light, right? Everyone just snores on, right? They're out cold. Peter, the, the, the guards sleeping on either side of him, the guards at the various posts outside, everyone is, is out cold. So the angel hits Peter. Uh, the word Luke uses here is not like this nudge. Hey, hey, wake up. It's, it's not that. He slugs him in the side, in the, in the ribs, hard. Um, Luke doesn't say this, but in my kind of weird brain, I imagine Peter waking up and going, Hey, what do you have to do that for? Right? To the angel. Peter's obviously in a fog because after the chains fell off, the angel has to tell him how to get dressed. Right? Like a parent maybe telling a, a, a child who's overslept, uh, how to get dressed on the first day of school. Maybe some of you parents had to do that this past week. Put your belt on. Shoes too. Now your coat. And then finally, the angel says, now follow me. Verse 9, so he went out and followed. And he, Peter, did not know that what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guard posts, probably with sleeping guards, right? Out cold. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. The word is atamate. They went outside and after passing just one street, the angel immediately left him. So Peter's 
still in a daze, trying to sort out dreams from reality as the angel leads him out of the prison complex outside of the city, past the guard stations, through the automatic gate, and into the city. And once they're safely out, the angel leaves him. And Peter finally, at this point, comes fully awake. Verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish leaders had wanted him to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. Whenever we find ourselves in trouble, the first thing we should do, as, as James 5.13 says, we should pray. And the second thing we should do is find God's people. Uh, be with God's people, the, the church. And in this case, the church is meeting at Mary's house. And here the story gets even more comical. Verse 13 Peter knocked at the door in the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gateway. So Rhoda is a a name that means rose. Uh, Rhoda's probably a young girl, and as the adults had, had gathered for prayer, for this fervent prayer meeting, uh, little Rhoda was, was given strict instructions not to let anyone in. Why? Herod is hunting Christians, right? So it's, it's a serious business. It's an uh, important charge that, that she's been given. And, and again, my sort of deranged mind imagines this exchange going something like the old Cheech and Chong bit, Dave's not here for any of you people who might remember that before you were saved, of course. <laughs> so, so Peter's knocking on the door, and he's, of course, trying not to attract too much attention because he's, he's just escaped from prison, right? And, and he's, I imagine, doing that sort of loud whisper thing, saying, Hello? Somebody let me in. It's Peter. To which Rhoda says, Peter's not here. And Peter says, no, it's me. Peter, open up. Peter's not here. That bad man put him in jail. Go away. Rhoda, it's me. Peter, go get the grown-ups. Right? So finally, Rhoda recognizes Peter's voice, but she's so overjoyed that she forgets to let him in. She just goes to the grown-ups, and she leaves Peter standing behind the the locked door. And the grown-ups dismiss her and this crazy story that she's telling as, as nonsense. After all, they know, right? This is why they're gathered here. They know that Peter is in jail being guarded by 16 soldiers. Verse 15, you're crazy, they told her. The word there is the word that we get maniac from, right? They think she's nuts, right? But she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, 
It's probably his angel. Now, what's going on with this? In, in first century Jewish culture, there was this strong belief in guardian angels. And they believed that the guardian angel would sometimes present itself as a likeness of the person that they were responsible for. And, and it seems that this might be what these smarter, more mature, more cultured adults believed was going on. So for them, it was is it was easier to believe that an angel was knocking at the door pretending to be Peter than it was to believe that God had actually heard their prayers. Anyone else sometimes do that? Meanwhile, Peter's still outside knocking away, right? Verse 16, Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. So now there's a, a crowd at the gate. The believers are astounded. Luke uh, says that they uh, had been praying earnestly, but apparently they weren't praying expectantly because they can't believe their eyes. And their astounded celebration seems to have gotten kind of noisy. Okay? It's so loud that Peter has to shush them. Verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. Then he departed and went to a different place. So Peter tells them, I think, the whole story about the light that filled the jail cell, the angel punching him in the ribs, the chains falling off, the automatic gate, the whole thing. And then he tells them to go find James and the other disciples and tell them what has happened. And Peter here is talking about James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. And we know that after this, uh, James became the leader of the, the church in Jerusalem um, and he presided over the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Then Luke says Peter went somewhere else. Doesn't tell us where. Uh, we won't hear from Peter again uh, in the book of Acts for four more years uh, until we get to Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council. So that's the story that I wanted us to look at this morning. We, we looked at this a while back, a couple of years ago, when we were going through the book of Acts and when we did, I, I talked about the importance of praying earnestly, fervently, not just throwing up sort of half-hearted prayers, but, but really doing the hard work of prayer. And I, and I talked about the importance of praying expectantly, believing, believing in faith that God really was capable of, of doing something miraculous and, and changing the outcome of, of bad situations. And thirdly, I talked about trusting God with the outcome. That, that sometimes God says yes to our prayers, but sometimes he says, I've got something better. And we have to trust him with those things. All of those things are still true. But what I want to say to you this morning, what I want to encourage you with this morning is that God still is in the business of doing miracles. God still hears fervent, earnest prayers offered up by the church. And God still answers prayer. I want you to hear a testimony this morning of answered prayer that, that many of you, if not all of you, participated in. 
New Year's Day uh, 2021. Uh, Becky and I got a call uh, from our friend Mary that her husband Doug had been admitted to the hospital with COVID. Uh, now Doug and, and then Mary have, have been some of our best friends for like 45 years, long, long time. Uh, Mary was concerned, we were concerned, and we assured her that we would pray, and we began praying. But Doug didn't get better. He got worse. And so we began to ask more people to join us uh, in prayer. I, I started posting uh, specific updates on, on my Facebook page. Many of you saw those and, and were praying. I asked us as a church uh, to pray uh, for my friend Doug. Mary organized a, a prayer vigil at the hospital uh, in the parking lot because no one could get in, right? Well, Doug's with us this morning, so you kind of know already the, the outcome of that organized fervent prayer. Uh, but I, I wanted Doug to share some of the story from his standpoint, so I'm going to invite him up again. Would you just welcome Doug Hanks one more time? Is it him or is it his angel? (laughs) I send you greetings from Christians in California. There are a few of us left. The rest have moved to Texas. If you prayed for me, thank you. If you took time out of your day to send me before the Lord, thank you. If you got down on your knees, thank you. If you bowed your head, thank you. I'm standing here because of you. I am here because of prayer. No other reason. I did nothing to deserve this. It is God's grace that brought me back to life. And uh, it was quite a trip. On January 1st, we called 911. I had a fever of 105. My oxygen saturation level was 80% with six liters of oxygen. So I was breathing oxygen. I couldn't get enough. Room air, I was at 70 to 75%. And I spent the next five months in the hospital. On January 9th, I, uh, that was my birthday, my grand children gave me a book of photographs. I was too weak to lift it up and read it. On January 11th, I felt myself going down the drain. And I was having constant conversations with Jesus saying, I'm ready to go, but I'd like to stay. I'm ready to go, but I'd like to stay. It was constant prayer. And about that time, I called my wife and I said, I need you to call three of my friends. I need you to call uh, a pastor in Colorado. I need you to call a pastor in Illinois. And I need you to call Pastor Dean in uh, Oregon, which she had already done. She also had 50 groups that she was texting to pray. So we know that it started with 50 groups of people and then the three pastors that I asked her to pray for or ask her to contact to pray for me. 
On January 14th, they put me on a ventilator. And I was on a ventilator for 46 days. Now, I had seen all the reports of the people in Southern California who had gone on ventilators. And if you had underlying conditions, the chances were that you weren't coming off the ventilator. In fact, we asked nurses and medical people after I got out of the hospital, what were my odds of coming out? And they said it was 1 in 10. 1 in 10 that anybody on a ventilator would come out. But then you have underlying conditions. I was over 65. I was overweight. I had type 2 diabetes. And I loved the music of the carpenters. And when you have that and diabetes, it's like it doesn't matter. So I was on my way down the drain, and people started praying. On March 12th, I came to. So January 14th to March 12th, I finally realized where I was, and I didn't have my wedding ring. I asked my wife, where's my wedding ring? And she said, They gave me your wedding ring back in February, along with all of your possessions. And they said, the outlook is grim. Those are four words that that ring in our minds. The outlook is grim. I had uh, heart problems. I had liver problems. I had kidney problems. My lungs weren't working. I had two chest tubes. We had infection that wasn't uh, going away. I had two transfusions. We think one was from a werewolf and one was from a teenager because my skin got really oily and I grew hair, places I'd never grown hair before. (laughs) So, fervent prayer. It starts with daily prayer. Some of you pray every day. Some of you don't pray every day. You should start. Uh, My wife gets up an hour and a half before I do and sits in a rocking chair and looks out the window and goes through her prayer journals, listens to Lexio 365, and prays. Prays for people all over the world. I've prayed for hundreds of people that I don't know. And now I'm one of those guys that I know that people prayed for me. Daily prayers... I have breakfast with some retired teachers. I was a teach, middle school teacher before I retired, and, and one of them said to me afterwards, after a breakfast, he says, you returned me to my daily prayers. So daily prayers is where it starts. Then weekly prayer groups. Sometimes in your Bible study, you'll take prayers. Uh, I meet with a men's group every Friday morning at 7 a.m., There's six of us right now that meet regularly, and we share prayer requests. We tell stories about what's happened to us. Uh, We go through some some studies and uh, things like that, but mainly we pray for each other. And uh, uh, those guys FaceTimed me when I was in the hospital and prayed with me uh, in the prayer group. Uh, There's a guy I met on a cruise to Alaska who lives in Wisconsin. It's amazing that... On a cruise at dinner time, you can form a friendship over five days. Uh, he shared with me uh, that his group prayed for me every time they got together. Uh, my wife, as I was getting better, my wife went to a bridal shower 
for her godson. The bridal shower was in a very prestigious place, the uh, Balboa Bay Club in Newport Beach. And she went there, and she didn't know anybody except the mother of the groom. And so she was giving her the update of my condition. And a woman at the next table leaned over and said, Are you talking about Doug Hanks? So we prayed for him last night at our Bible study. So your weekly prayer groups get fervent prayer accomplished. Then a teacher named Mary Catherine formed a circle of prayer. I don't know Mary Catherine. I know of Mary Catherine. I knew that she was a teacher up at a school near me, but I'd never met her. She organized a prayer group. She put it on social media. She printed out scripture and song lyrics. They played some of the songs that I'd written. And this group formed outside of Kaiser, outside of my room. And uh, we've got a picture of it there. That's half of it. They're practicing social distancing. And uh, the other half is behind the person taking the picture. And they were outside my room praying for me while I was in an induced coma on a ventilator, organized by a person that I didn't know. Uh, My wife uh, did appointed times of prayer. On my birthday at 10 a.m., everybody prayed for me. And then in February, she did another one that at 10 a.m. in the morning, everybody would pray. Well, it happened that my nephew, who's a firefighter, happened to be skiing on that day. And at 10 a.m., he got all his firefighter buddies halfway down the slope, on the ski slopes, and they formed a circle and prayed for me at appointed times of prayer, where people, I later found out, all over the world stopped and prayed for me. Just incredible. Then prayers of proximity. If you can get close to the person, get close. My wife and one of her friends parked in the parking space at Kaiser in Ontario, Kaiser, Ontario, and prayed for me. And I've been back to that parking space and stood in that parking space because that parking space became holy ground where heaven and earth became one. I didn't take my shoes off because I didn't want to get my socks oily. Another one of my friends, Mary Heil, was driving by my rehab hospital, and she and her friend pulled into the parking lot right outside my room and prayed for me. And so if you can get close to the person who needs prayer, get close. And then celebrate answers of prayer. Celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. On the day that I went home, which was May 27th on a Thursday, uh, I knew I was being released. And I knew my release time was uh, 1.30. But there was nothing keeping me there. And I was so anxious to go home. And I kept saying, let's, let's go, let's go. No, there's one more thing. There's some papers they need to sign and things like that. And uh, Mary kept putting me off of getting me into the car and going home. So once I got into the car, I just wanted to get home. 
I was afraid I was going to go to the bathroom in the car. So I wanted to just get from the hospital and get home. And she said, would you like to stop and buy some strawberries on the way home? No, no, let's just get home. And then she took the long way home. It was like this and this way and this way. And the reason was at 2 o'clock there was a celebration. My stepdaughter had had a dream that I would open my eyes. And two days after she had that dream, I opened my eyes and began the slow process of coming back, recovering from COVID. So we've got some pictures of this. I came up on Sapphire Street, and for a half mile, my friends lined the street with posters and balloons and cheering and jumping up and down. And we got to, it was, it, this was a miracle. Nobody had parked on the street. So we could just pull over and Mary put her flashers on and we rolled the window down and waved to everybody. And I tried to remember their names and couldn't. And uh, we just had a celebration as we went up Sapphire Street and saw this, uh, this collection of people that had prayed for me for five months. Then I got home, and this was there. My grandchildren had made posters. And if that doesn't wipe you out, nothing will. For two months in the hospital, I dreamed about coming home and having a glass of homemade lemonade made by them. So I said to Mary, um, when I was in the hospital, she still couldn't see me. I said, have the grandchildren practice making lemonade so it's perfect because it was my dream. A glass of ice, ice cold lemonade, and I would share that with them. That's the day that uh, I did that. I kind of look like the old man in the sea. Uh, nobody cut my, well, they cut my hair, it kind of fell out, but nobody shaved my beard for five months. So that's what I looked like back then. I recovered by counting. Uh, my recovery took another six months after I was out of there. When I woke up, I had a clock on the wall that ticked off seconds, so I would count the seconds. I would shut my eyes and count to 60 and see if I got it right. And then Kaiser had something that was a uh, uh, the educational TV. It was What I got to watch for three days was Protocols for Post-Bariatric Surgery. It was a talking head doctor who talked for 20 minutes, and that loop played for three days. That was my television. And so I started counting. How many times have I watched this? And, and then I counted how many days I was in the hospital, and I was in there for 147 days, which is exactly 21 weeks, which is 3 times 7, which are my two favorite biblical numbers. Smack in the middle of that time, one of the hospital workers walked in, and um, she was a, a girl who stapled up the menus on the bulletin boards. And she walked in. She had jet black hair. It was pulled back in a red ribbon. 
She was wearing a mariachi outfit with red piping. And when she took down her mask, she had brilliant red lipstick that matched the piping and the ribbon. And she was carrying a big body ovation guitar. And she said to me, Mr. Doug, I hear you're a worship leader. How she found that out, I don't know. But she sang, I could sing of your love forever just for me. Which is interesting because it's the first song that I ever led at the church I'm going to right now. It was just one of God's blessings. So thank you. I got to the point where um, I started hearing the word miracle. And uh, it was first from a nurse that came in and said, how's our miracle man doing? And then somebody else would say that. Then a nurse um, at Kaiser got right in my face, not in a bad way, but right so I could see her. And she said, you realize what has happened to you is a miracle of God. I still couldn't comprehend that until I got a text from one of the pastors. The pastor in Illinois was texting Pastor Dean, and they put me in the text. And it said, we have witnessed a miracle. And Dean replied, yes, we have. At that point, I started thinking, something must have happened to me that's incredible. There's an elephant in the room. A million people died from COVID. Why not me? So I thought about that, and I thought about that. I've been out of the hospital for a year and three months, and the answer that I've realized is, I don't know. Deuteronomy 29.29 is a great comfort to me. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. That's a great comfort to me, that God has secrets that he's not going to let us in on until we get there. And I almost got there to find out, but I have to wait a little longer to find out about this one. The other verse I want to share with you is 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. There's a primary interpretation of this that has to do with immorality, fleeing immorality and not sinning with your body. It says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. There's a secondary interpretation for this, that it has to do with us being purchased. Jesus bought these bodies with his blood. They don't belong to us anymore. And that if he wanted to take me, I was fine with that. In fact, we had great conversations, him and me, about how I was going to go and maybe some of the things that would happen. 
after I was gone. Then I also prayed that I would stay and that I would be able to enjoy my grandkids a little longer. I'd be able to see my wife a little longer, and I'd be able to reunite with the friends who had prayed for me. All of that was in his hands because I don't own this anymore. God owns this, and God can do anything he wants to with it, anything. I think before COVID, I looked at this verse, and it was academic. Now it's real that this belongs to God. God hears you. God answers you. And sometimes God does a miracle. Thank you.